opening thoughts or questions or just ideas about Hosea that uh, maybe have come to mind over the course of the study that we haven't covered yet? I know not everyone was there for the whole book because we were in it for a while, but if there's anything that we need to finish up about Hosea, we could cover that quickly first. One of the big issues with Joel as compared to Hosea is Hosea indicates which kings it was written, the reigns of which kings it was written under, and so that makes it fairly easy to say when it was written. When it comes to the book of Joel, uh, there is not such clear historical information about when it was written. The book itself talks about God's judgment in terms of a locust plague. It talks about God's future judgment in terms of the day of the Lord. It talks about enemies sort of overwhelming Israel. It talks about the judgment of the nations and the future restoration, particularly of Judah. And so all of these themes are somewhat unclear as to where they should be uh, placed historically. Uh, I was uh, looking in one of the commentaries on Joel that I have, and it raises a number of issues about the date of when Joel was written, uh, 13 specifically. So first of all, one of the things that people say is, well, it doesn't mention any kings, so there must have been no kings. How many of you feel like that's a strong argument? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't potentially uh, mention, um, I'm trying to think of a good example here. Let's say it doesn't mention olives. Does that mean that there's no olives? I mean, olives are less significant than kings in terms of figuring out what the time period is, but it's a little bit of a silly to say it doesn't mention a thing, therefore it had to have been this date. That's not a very strong argument. Um, priests and elders are the authorities in the city. Okay, But even in Isaiah's day, the priests and elders are rebuked for their um, attitudes, and the kings are rebuked for their lack of leadership. And so, again, you could theoretically have a scenario where the priests and elders are the practical ruling authority because the kings are off drunk, partying, doing, pursuing their own interests, right? So again, I don't think that that proves that it happened before or after the exile. Uh, thirdly, it focuses on Jerusalem with no mention of the northern kingdom of Israel. So this would assume that the northern kingdom did not exist. So Joel would be a late pre-exilic or post-exilic book. So the exile talking about of Judah, um, we would happen uh, around 605 and 586 are some of the common dates given for that. The conquest of Israel was significantly earlier, I want to say it was 714, so about 100 years earlier. So uh, if this third one is accurate in, in, in its significance, it would be basically, it would have to be written either between the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel and the Judah being carried away into captivity, which would put the date somewhere around like 650, something like that. Um, so a little bit after Isaiah and Hosea, but um, before some of the prophets like Daniel, for example. Um, this, in fact, would be consistent with what 
uh, Jewish scholars had asserted and was kind of commonly accepted as best I can tell up until more recently. What would be a reason, and you say, what, why are we making a big deal about this? What would be a reason for someone to say Joel is written after the, king, the kingdom is conquered? If Joel says the kingdom's going to be conquered, what would be the significance of it being written after it's conquered versus before it's conquered? Braden? Yeah, yeah. He's not prophesying if he's just recording things that have already happened. The majority of current scholars don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in prophecy in any meaningful sense and all that sort of thing. And so I think we should be hesitant for an explanation that neatly falls into place if you are someone writing looking back on historical events instead of someone writing looking forward to things that are going to happen. And this gets tricky, obviously, because you have, um, oh, here's our timeline, right? So let's say, uh, so here's the, here's the 714 B.C. I mentioned, Israel Falls. Here's the 605 B.C., uh, Judah Falls. Here's uh, the return they rebuild the wall uh, and the city. Uh, I want to say that's around 400 BC. Well, 586. There's different waves of it. Let's say it's between 500 and 450 BC. And then you have obviously the coming of Christ. You say, why is it in 4 BC? That's a whole other thing. But. Um, Monks weren't always the best at dates. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, so if Joel is written here, this would be the early date, versus here or here, these would be the late dates, then some of the things that he refers to sort of take on a different significance. I could write here and write from the perspective of someone here looking back on what's going to be here and anticipating what is to come. And the possibility of him doing that would be because God's showing him what's going to be taking place in this time period. And quite honestly, the reality is, unless we say the day of the Lord has already come, he's talking about events that are going to be going on down here as well, even future from our time. Bob? So, when are you thinking that it's I would be arguing for probably sometime between the fall of Israel and the fall of Judah. Not that this is, you know, the gospel, but my book says 835 B.C. Okay. So I'm just curious why it's a big difference. Yeah, so your book being what? It says Ryrie Study Bible. Ryrie Study Bible, okay, yeah. Um, all right, so potentially the, there's more than one early date, Okay. So if we put it around 835 versus around 650, and these would be like 550 or even as late as like 300, 350 or so. Why is there such a wide range? Because the book doesn't specifically say when it's written. So, for example, in chapter 1, it mentions this big plague of locusts. 
and there is not necessarily a historical record of a specific plague of locusts that would have been so significant that it's the one that Joel is talking about. So it would be kind of like, mm, it's not an exact parallel, but anybody ever heard your parents or grandparents talking about the snow or the ice storm of such and such, right? I think there was one in... 84. There's one in 84. I feel like there was one around 92, and I remember I was a little kid, and, and we had, didn't have power for like four days, and there was big drifts of snow and lots of ice everywhere. I remember that one being really bad, right? But let's say that somebody, some people in Israel kept records of those sorts of things, which people didn't tend to keep records of those things the way that they do now. So if you look at weather data, for example, it only goes back so far. Um, how are we to distinguish the locust invasion of this year versus that year versus the other year, right? So there's a sense in which it's significant because if it's written here, it loses some of the prof prophetic um, urgency. Uh, we would, however, I think, acknowledge that First and Second Chronicles and some of these other books appear to have been written after the exile to challenge people to remember the word of the Lord, looking back on Israel's history and saying, don't go back and live this way that you did that led to the exile. Okay? Um, at least there's a lot of people that would argue that. So, again, all I'm saying is the reasons that I've raised so far, none of them are definitive like it has to be this really specific time window. Okay? It mentions walls in Jerusalem in chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, they climb the wall, verse 9. They rush on the wall. So, either Joel is writing before the exile, or he is writing um, after Nehemiah's reform. And so, let me see here. So, Nehemiah restoring the walls is around 444 B.C., according to this commentary, at least. Um, yes? So this makes a note that the, the thought was because the current king was a minor, and so it was being ruled by the priest. So he didn't have, in a sense, uh, the opportunity to be a, a good or bad king at that time. Okay, that's definitely a possible possibility. So then they would be saying... Um, who were we thinking? Joash? One of okay. Joash. I think it's the same. We'd have to look that up. Um, he mentions the temple as though it is currently in, in, in process. So that would exclude the exilic period because there's no temple from 586 to 515. So at the very least, it's excluding that time frame, right? Um, the book of Joel falls between Hosea and Amos in the Hebrew canon. This would be an argument. Some would say that the minor prophets are roughly arranged in chronological order. If that's the case, that would mean it's pre-exilic because you have Hosea writing around the same time as Isaiah, and then you have Joel, and then a little bit later you, see you have Jonah being written before the Assyrians come and conquer Israel entirely, right? Um, so, again... What we're doing is saying, we're looking at these data points to say, here's a potential range. We're not saying any of one of these by itself is definitive. Um, the seventh thing, it alludes to Israelites being captives and exiles. Some people would say this means Israel has already been scattered and Joel is post-exilic. 
However, were there periods in which people were captured from the nation of Israel and put into exile prior to everybody having that happen? Yes, because there were, there were waves of judgment that God sent on the people of Israel because of their perpetual idolatry. So again, I don't think this is definitive by itself. Uh, number eight, all who can live in the land can gather in Jerusalem. This would mean the population is small and local. Joel is late pre-exilic or post-exilic. Um, again, it says all the inhabitants of the land of the house of the Lord your God. It seems to me to be a little bit of a stretch to say that means everyone can gather there and there's only a few people. Because weren't the people commanded to gather at Jerusalem for certain things when they were numerous and strong and lots of people living in the land? They were. So I don't think this is definitive by itself. Uh, Joel seems to cite other prophets. So, for example, people would say Joel 2.32 might, uh, where it says, It comes about, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be delivered for on Mount Zion. And in Jerusalem, the Lord, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Verse 17 of Obadiah says, On Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. So they're saying, Joel is quoting Obadiah. What's the other possibility? Well, two possibilities. Okay, or... Okay, because the same God is giving the same message to both of them, right? So God could have phrased it in a similar way, and they both wrote it down in a similar way. So same kind of issue you have when you're trying to date the Gospels. Was Mark the first Gospel, or was it a later Gospel that copied from the other two? Um, but given that all three Gospels were written by eyewitnesses or people who extensively interviewed eyewitnesses, like Luke wasn't an eyewitness of all these things, but he interviewed a bunch of apostles and wrote his gospel. It's the same kind of thing. People get in arguments, did this come first, did that come first? Again, it's really hard to say, is Obadiah quoting Joel, is Joel quoting Obadiah, or both of them referring to something that God said to both of them? Uh, mentions that Jewish slaves were, no, were sold to Greeks in the book. Greeks were more well-known to Israelites in the post-exilic period. Joel is post-exilic. Well, that's true, but Greece begins its rise to power and its involvement in world events long before it became a dominant empire. So again, I'm not convinced that that's conclusive. Egypt, Edom, the Philistines, and Phoenicians are enemies of Jews. This commentary says the implication is disputed. Well, yeah, because the fact that the people who've been their enemies for long swaths of their history are still their enemies doesn't really help us put a date on it. It just says things are still the way that they have been. It mentions angelic armies. Some would say this rec reflects late apocalyptic thinking. Joel is post-exilic. Or, that means that God gave Elisha a vision of an army surrounding the city, right? It was Elisha or Elijah? I think it was Elisha. God opens the eyes of his servant to see the angelic armies. So that's not like the prophets never thought of this before, because it happened way back in the time of Ahab, which would have been, let's see, Ahab versus Jeroboam. I mean, possibly around the 800 date that you were talking about, right? 
because Ahab was a fairly wicked king relatively early on in their history, about halfway through. And then the last is that it contains Aramaisms. So Aramaic was a language similar to Hebrew that was spoken in the region. So people will say, well, if you have figures of speech from a particular language, and that particular language wasn't widely used until this point, then that means it must be late, right? Any other possible explanations, or is that conclusion? Braden? Okay, yeah, there are, all, well, I mean, the argument that there have always been people who like to use weird phrases is potentially an argument, right? Um, again, language develops over the course of time, and it's entirely possible that through the process of trade, some of these figures of speech would have arrived into language either earlier than anticipated and or from those becoming like widespread languages for, for purposes of things. So here's the point that I'm trying to make. While the book does not definitively say it was written before or after the exile, since none of the arguments that I just mentioned in my mind are conclusive saying that it had to have happened in this time period, I think that we're looking at this range and potentially because of the escalation of anticipating God's judgment, what I mean by that is Hosea says you need to repent. Joel says a similar thing but with a lot more striking imagery. I think there's a case to be made for it having been written after Hosea somewhere in this time period here. Now, Ryrie may have very good reasons for saying earlier, and I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying whether we say it's written a little bit earlier in the history of Israel or whether we say it's written somewhere in this time period, the effect is the same that we're talking about a prophet looking forward, warning the people of what's about to come, instead of a historian looking backwards saying, oh, this is what happened, also some things down the road. Does that make sense, the difference between those two? I'm spending a little bit more time on this because I think I feel like the Old Testament is where modern critical scholarship tried to unravel a supernatural understanding of God's revelation. What I mean by that is they started with like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy and came up with all these alternative explanations that weren't Moses wrote it. Then they moved to some of the historical books and prophetic books. Then they moved to the New Testament and started saying, well, Paul didn't write this, or Peter didn't write this, whoever else didn't write this, and someone else borrowed their name, and all these sorts of things. So all I'm saying is, because the Old Testament was kind of the starting point for people denying inspiration and God revealing things, I think we need to have a clear understanding for some of why that's significant and the fact that the arguments are not always as, as clear-cut as they would make them sound. Any questions on all that before we get into chapter 1? Does that all make sense? Any? Norma? Is there any what? Okay, so... Uh, that will probably come up well in chapter, let's see, 
I think chapter 2, yeah, the end of chapter 2 is probably a good time to discuss that, Norma. So when we get to chapter 2 in a week or two. So what Norma is asking about is there are prophecies that appear to refer to multiple things, or at least parts of them refer to different things separated by large swaths of time, and how do we think about all that? We talked about that some in Hosea. Um, and, but we'll, uh, we'll get to that toward the end of chapter 2 here. Anything else? Any other questions right off before we get into chapter 1? Okay. Uh, let's do verses 1 through 3. Who'd like to read that for us, please? Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Tina, thank you. All right, anything significant from verse 1? Braden? Okay, so it's the word of the Lord. We see that phrase a lot in the prophetic books and then also in like 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. And that refers to the idea that God has spoken and God has spoken through this prophet and God has spoken to the people. Okay. What else? Anything else significant here from verse 1? Exactly. So now we know slightly more about Joel. One of the remarkable things to me is in reading these commentaries, they have these extended, um, uh, what's the right word? theories about when it was written, which is remarkable because we know basically nothing about Joel. We know his name, we know his dad's name, we know he prophesied, and that's it, right? So some of the prophets, we know a lot more about their personal lives. Like Hosea, we know about his wife and his kids and his life was hard and all of these sorts of things because it goes in a lot of the details of his personal life. Joel is just says, God spoke to me, here's the message, and then it's, that's it, right? Um, so we don't have a ton of biographical information on Joel. How about verses 2 and 3? Any, anything stand out to you in verses 2 and 3? Yes, Robert. Okay. So he's basically saying, pay attention to this. What else? What else is going on here? Braden? Right. Yeah, I don't know why this popped into my head, but anybody ever watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? <laughs> Follows a certain pattern and sort of the same things happen every day, right? Joel is saying this is not that. 
this is remarkable, unusual, even terrible, right? So much so that in verse 3, what's he urging them to do? Yeah, so um, there are echoes of some of the books of the law, I feel like, in what Joel is saying here. And so I want to say it's Deuteronomy 6. Let me see if I can find it here real quick. He says, um, at the end of Deuteronomy 6, he says, When your son asks you, what do these things mean? Then remind him of how God delivered us, and we need to obey, and all these sorts of things. And so there's at least a single generation, and there, there's other passages, I can't think of the specific reference, but... But there's these ideas that you're supposed to pass on truth to the next generation. Bob? Seems obvious that, they, obvious that they didn't do it. Otherwise, we'd be able to date it. Right? Yeah? Yeah, so they didn't, they didn't pass on this warning of God. Okay, let's get to 4 to 7, and then I think that will we'll pick up an interesting and important detail. So who wants to read verses 4 through 7? Verses 4 through 7? Evan, thank you. Okay. What's uh what's going on in these verses? Yeah, Margaret? Yeah, there's clearly destruction, okay? What else? Okay. Yeah, and we see that even in verse 5, right? What's going on in verse 5? Yeah, that's kind of the starting place. If you've been partying and somebody has drunk all the beer and there's nowhere to get any more, that's probably going to put an end to the party, right? And so in this instance... He's saying the locust have stripped the land bare and famine, like starvation, is down the road, but the immediate effect is there's no more wine, right? So all these people that have sort of drunk themselves into a stupor, potentially the rulers, because we see the rulers being admonished for being drunkards in other places, such that he's saying maybe there's hope for the elders to wake the people up. Now the rulers and anybody else that's just been sort of living this life of laziness and excess and all of this, now the, whole, the, the cold, hard realities are making themselves known. Uh, in Proverbs, it's the, um, the ant works diligently, right? Um, there's that, uh, that story. I don't, 
I forget where the kid's story comes from, but like the, the it's either the cricket or the grasshopper parties all summer long, and then the ants stored up all the food, and then the grasshopper, the whoever is hungry in the fall when it starts to become winter because he hasn't stored up any food. That's a later version. <laughs> I'm talking about a book, but yes, I understand. But here's my point. The 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 lifestyle of trying to ignore God and enjoy pleasure and forget all of the things that might be going badly is going to be brought to a sudden and abrupt halt, right? How about verses 6 and 7? What's going on there? Bob? So, he refers to it as a nation. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know if this is a dumb question, but mm -hmm. is he referring to the locusts as a nation, or are the locusts a metaphor for another nation that actually could be invading and wipe everything out? So that's a good question. So in Nahum 3, uh, 15, it says, Multiply yourself like the creeping locust, like the swarming locust. You've increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locust. Your marshals like hordes of grasshoppers. And then kind of goes on from there. Uh, so he is describing the... Um, I believe he's describing people attacking the Assyrians here in Nahum. So there are places where nations are described like locusts, right? So in Isaiah, I think uh, the nations conquering Judah were described as like a wave sweeping over the plain. They're not actually water, and there wasn't actually a flood, but that's sort of figurative language. So yeah, I think it's a completely legitimate and important question to ask. Is it an actual locust plague anticipating judgment by other nations conquering them, or is it nations coming in and conquering them described figuratively as a locust plague? I was trying to find the, uh, the reference here. Um... So in Deuteronomy 28, it talks about the curses that God would send on them if they uh, rejected him and disobeyed him. And it talks about that from the middle of chapter 28 down to the end of chapter 28. Uh, it says, for example, in chapter 28, verse 38, all your trees and the produce of your ground. And then after that, a little bit later, uh, around verse 49 of Deuteronomy 28, it says, The Lord will bring a nation against you. Verse 51, It shall eat the offspring of your herd, the produce of your ground, until you are destroyed. Who also leaves you no grain, new wine, or oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. It will besiege you until you eat your children, and all of these things will happen. God will bring on you plagues and all diseases and destruction and all those sorts of things. 
If I was to answer it, your question based on Deuteronomy 28, I would say it seems like what comes first is the famine and the attacks by insects and all of those sorts of things and then escalates to the nations coming and just wiping them out entirely. So again, we get into a little bit of a circular argument because if Joel is written here, then he is basically saying, God's warning you this is going to happen if you don't change your ways. If he's writing here, then he's talking very specifically about the nations that have basically swept in and destroyed the land. So we're kind of back to that question of when is it written. Um, I mean, I would kind of default to, I would trust the opinion of the Jewish scholars who are more familiar with it and the rabbis than I would modern scholarship, which tends to spin fanciful explanations of things because it impresses people and driven by a motivation that denies inspiration and things like that. If that's correct, and I'm not saying we couldn't make arguments for or against it, we're talking about an early date. It is an actual plague of insects that anticipates the destruction of enemies like locusts and bugs and, and marauding creatures. Um, that we see actually happening. They're not, they're not exclusive, it's just a question of which one comes first because both happened to Israel and Judah because of their disobedience. Any other thoughts on that, Norma? In, in where? In uh, Revelation? Oh, where? In the United States? No, no, no. In, 19, in the year 1915. Okay. So, um, explain your question to me because I might be misunderstanding. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there have been, since this time that Joel is talking about, there have been actual plagues of locusts and other things that have destroyed crops and caused famines for people. Okay. I don't, I'm not familiar with that specific one, but we could definitely look into it some more. Tina? How so? All right. So that's a, that's a fair question to ask. Mm. What's that? No, I think it's a reasonable question to ask. So the United States is not Israel, so I don't think God has promised us warnings before complete destruction like he did for the Israelites. At the same time, we do see principles in the Old Testament that to the extent that there are people who are following God in the midst of the land, God delays judgment. So is it possible that God sends warnings to people and delays complete destruction for certain nations that are behaving incredibly wickedly for the sake of Christians that are living in those lands? Sometimes. Yeah, so um, there's a, I think it's in Luke, 
there's a tower that falls and a bunch of people die. I mean, a bunch of people meaning maybe, I don't know, 40 or 50 people. It doesn't say exactly how many, but that's kind of the sense that I have of it. And people are talking about it. This is a current event. This tower collapsed. How wicked must those people have been for God to cause them to die in this terrible accident? And Jesus' response is, you need to stop worrying about how bad they were and take this as a warning that you need to repent and be right with God because you will also face God, whether it's in a a seeming accident tomorrow, like the thing that just happened there, or whether it's at the end of your life, you're going to stand before God, so are you ready to face Him or not? So, at the very least, any natural disaster, whether it be from insects, or whether it be from weather, or whether it be from whatever else, should be an occasion for any nation that experiences it to say, have we sinned against God? And typically the answer is going to be yes, to a greater or lesser extent. Um, But I don't think... uh, We have to be careful. Again, the United States is not Israel, but God behaves in similar ways to nations throughout history. I think we could make a case that God gave Israel more time because they were his chosen people in contrast to some of the other nations like the Canaanites or the Egyptians or the Assyrians. Like the Assyrians become an empire and the time interval between the Assyrians becoming an empire and the Assyrians being defeated by others is a lot shorter than the interval of all the times that Israel kept sinning throughout their history as as one example of what I'm trying to say. So yes, As far as application, if we see a natural disaster, our first question should not be to say how awful those people were. It should be to say, am I right with God? And if I am, am I praying for people to repent? And if I am, am I telling people the gospel? And if I am, uh, am I encouraging other people to do the same? Like That should kind of be the sequence of our thinking, I think. Personal repentance intercession for other people, going and witnessing to people, we unfortunately, I think, often get hung up in trying to understand the significance of circumstances in ways that God hasn't revealed to us. So, let's say, um, let's say that there is a particular place that's known for sins like those of Sodom and Gomorrah and a tornado comes through. It would be really easy for us to be like, hey, look at them. They got what they deserve. God's punishing them. And not to recognize the fact that there are sins that we think are not a big deal that have characterized other places through which natural disasters have come and we haven't seen any significance to that because if we saw significance to that, it would rebuke us of the sins that lurk in our own hearts. Because it's really easy for us to look at sins that we don't commit and say, oh, they got what they deserved. But when we look at sins that we are prone to, then we minimize the warning signs because we don't want to have to deal with them. And that's just the unfortunate and, and uh, the thing that really needs God's grace in our hearts to bring us to repentance. So. Okay, any other things real quick on this section, and then I think we may may pause there for today. Anything else on, on these verses, these first part here of Joel? 
I don't think the passage says definitively, was this an actual locust plague? Because the prophets use it figuratively, but my argument would be it is an actual locust plague that anticipates the judgment of nations coming in based on the progression of things in Deuteronomy 28. And you are more than welcome, and I will go and look at some other things during the course of the week, and if we have more conversation about it next week, that's totally fine too. So, Any other, any other thoughts or ideas about these, this first section here? All right, let's pray, and then we will uh, head into the service here in a minute. Father, as we consider facts, I pray that we would consider them because they're important and we need to understand what the uh, result or the implication of them would be. But at the same time, Lord, I pray that we would not get so hung up in the facts that we mm, argue over this date or that date and miss the significance that whether this was a plague of insects leading to famine or whether it was... Uh, the beginning incursions of a foreign army, both of these should have been an immediate sign to your people to repent, but they didn't. Lord, if there are any similar warnings that we are experiencing in our lives, events out of the ordinary, they maybe don't have any reasonable explanation, something unexpected happens, we shouldn't be superstitious and try to explain every last detail of what's going on, but when something stops and arrests our attention, Lord, I think you call us to pause and reflect on, are we right before you? Are those around us right before you? And that should turn our hearts to draw closer to you, to pray more fervently, and to urge the people around us to know you and follow you, because it's easy to think that as it's going to say in Second Peter that we look at here in a few weeks, things will continue as they ever have been. But you could return at any moment. And when the day of the Lord comes, how terrible would it be if we had opportunity to point people to you and we did not? If we ourselves assumed that we were right with you and we were not? And so I pray that Joel would be a warning and an admonition and an encouragement to us to live in a way that pleases you. In Christ's name, amen.